1 John chapter 3, verse 20 now. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Whatever a man thinks he knows of his sin, because God is greater, God knows more and could prosecute and bring charges exceeding even what the human heart and conscience recognizes as sin. Consequently, to maintain both peace and fellowship with God, there can be no hiding or indulging in sin, especially so in the heart. Wherever sin is, it must be confessed and dealt with in order for a man to maintain trust in God. A condemning heart does nothing to inspire greater confidence and trust in the Lord. And his ability to come to our aid, in fact, it does quite the opposite. Barnes on this verse, For if a heart condemn us, the general sentiment is that if they should so live that their own hearts would condemn them for present insincerity and hypocrisy. They could have no hope of peace, for God knows all that is in the heart. In view of the past, when the heart accuses us of what we have done, we may find peace by such evidences of piety and shall ally the troubles of an agitated soul, 1 John 3, 9. But we cannot have such peace if our hearts condemn us for the indulgence of secret sins, now that we profess to be Christians. If our hearts condemn us for present insincerity and for secret sins, we can never persuade or sue them by any external act of piety. In view of the consciousness of past guilt, we may find peace. We can find none if there is a present purpose to indulge in sin. Verse 21 now. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence towards God. To properly walk with God, it is essential that our love is pure, our faith and faint, and our conscience free of convicting and condemning sin. The condition of the heart greatly affects a man's faith and trust in God. To properly grow and develop in faith, we must so live that our heart does not accuse us of sin, but rather commends us for living rightly before the Lord. Though it is not known by most, a good conscience is as critical to true piety as love and faith are. Possessing these three godly characteristics is the ultimate end of God's will for the Christian. 1 Timothy 1.5, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and a good conscience and a faith unfeigned. If our faith or love is insincere and has no real depth in it, our conscience will inform us of such. Hence, the conscience plays a very key and important role in leading our soul to God's salvation by exposing if insincerity exists or our faith and love towards God is pure. When also the conscience is free from condemning sin, then greater faith and trust can be exercised in God. Verse 22, And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Here we observe the great extent that a pursuit of righteousness, a good conscience, and inward purity will produce. All prayers asked according to God's will will be answered. How a man then lives will directly affect whether or not God both hears and answers his prayers. Barnes on this, we can have no hope that he will hear us unless we do so live as to please him. How foolish it is to believe that any can live as they will, sin as they desire, and God will still hear them. The truth is that God will not hear nor come to the aid of any who regard iniquity in their heart. If men then embrace sin, they should not think that they will be heard of God. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. One of the fatal consequences of choosing to live a life of sin is that God will not hear those who do so. Sinners, therefore, should never be so presumptuous to believe that by deliberately walking in sin, 
that God will still hear them in their time of need. This is the truth of God's word, absent repentant prayer that acknowledges sin and does not defend and attempt to hide it from God. A sinner's plea will not be heard. For God to hear men, they must keep his commandments and do those things pleasing in his sight. It is only by living this way that they can be sure that all asked of God will be granted. It is the righteous that God hears and has promised to come to their aid, and not those harboring and committing sin in both their heart and life. Where the Lord's ears are open to the righteous, his face is against all engaged in evil. 1 Peter 3.12, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. A righteous man therefore need not fear that God will not hear his prayer nor come to his aid in time of need. Simply because God sees, knows, and will hear all who seek his own righteousness as a standard of living. Verse 23, And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. This is his, God's commandment, that we should not only believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, but also love one another as Jesus commanded his followers to do. Though there are two things spoken of, one, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and two, love one another as he gave his commandment. The Apostle John reveals that God has both connected and combined faith in Christ and love for the brethren as one commandment. Belief in the Son of God and love for the brethren are therefore eternally bound. To obey one will lead to embracing the other, just as disregarding one ensures that there can be no true possession of the other. This teaches us that whenever there is true belief in Jesus Christ, there will always be love for those born of Him. Hence, whenever there is sincere faith in the Savior, there will be corresponding love for His brethren. This is especially so regarding those created in Christ's own image via the Spirit of God residing in them. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, summing up God's commandments under the gospel dispensation in one commandment, that his commandment, singular, for faith and love are not separate commandments, but are indissolvably united. We cannot truly love one another without faith in Christ, nor can we truly believe in him without love. Verse 24, and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us. By the Spirit which he hath given us. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. Jesus promised his followers that if he was loved and his words were kept, then both he and the Father would come and live within their hearts. By the presence of the Spirit given to the saved, they are assured and daily comforted that God is in Christ and Christ lives in them. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered and said unto him, if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Where in the Old Testament it was observed that God would dwell among his people. Now the promise of the Son of God is that both the Father and the Son will come and make their abode in them. By keeping God's commandments, we dwell in God, and as a result, God dwells in us. A reality with even much deeper implications beyond even God's revelation to Israel. Once the Holy Spirit enters into a man's heart, there is created a spiritual oneness between him and the Father and Son. It is this oneness that Christ himself possessed with the Father that he prayed for regarding those who would believe upon him. John seventeen twenty. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, 
that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. For the true Christian, God is much more than simply around him. He is in all respects now living within him. The true church of Christ is not formed when men enter churches, but rather when the Father and Son enter them. Ellicott on John seventeen twenty one, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us. And the meaning is that the union of the church may be of the same essential nature as that between the Father and the Son. Yea, that the union of the church may result from the union of individual members with the Father through the Son. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. The means by which the Christian knows and is certain that God dwells in him is through the Spirit of God given to him. Because of the Spirit's presence and continued influence, those saved by God are made to know that they are of God and God is in them. Every true child of God will possess a certainty of his standing in heaven. This certainty is due to the fact of the Spirit's presence in his heart. It is this Spirit, this Holy Spirit, which allows the saved to cry, Abba, Father, something that mere slaves and those still in bondage were never allowed to do. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Barnes on this. It is said in the Babylonian Gemara, a Jewish work, that it was not permitted slaves to use the title of Abba in addressing the master of the family to which they belong. If so, then the language which Christians are here represented as using is the language of free men and denotes that they are not under the servitude of sin. End quote. Uh, 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they have God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. The warning here is to believe not every spirit. This includes every spirit or man who claims to be walking by it and professes to come in God's name. The reason that all spirits should be tried is because many, a vast amount of false prophets are gone out and operate in the world. All spirits are not holy spirits. Neither are all men who profess to speak by the Spirit of God actually of Him. This revelation the Apostle seeks to make especially clear, simply because both in the world and in the church, false ministers of the Christian faith abound. It's if a man has not the Spirit of Christ and a degree of discernment of spirits, then that which is not of God can easily be confused as having come from him. False prophets also do not simply deceive the world, but are purposed to infiltrate God's true body of believers and lead them down paths contrary to divine will. Sadly, if these counterfeit spirits are listened to by men, professing to come in Christ's name, then even saints can be led away from the simplicity which is in Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through a subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Barnes on this, but I fear. The mention of this seems to have suggested to him the fact that the first woman was deceived and led astray by the tempter, and that the same thing might occur in regard to the church, which he was so desirous should be preserved pure. The grounds of his fear were, one, Satan had seduced the first woman, thus demonstrating that the most holy ones were in danger of being led astray by temptation, and two, that special efforts were made to seduce them from the faith. The persuasive arts of false teachers, the power of philosophy, and the attractive and corrupting influence of the world, he had reason to suppose might be employed 
to seduce them from the simple attachment to Christ. The Christian doctrine, that which leads to the new birth and eternal life, is a very simple doctrine. It is a call to repent for sin, believe in the Son of God, and be baptized with the Holy Spirit by Him. Acts 2.38 Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. False prophets and false teachers will stress what God will do for men without men needing to do really anything for God. Man is the real subject of their preaching, and it is human desire that is catered to. In all false religion, it is man who is at the center, and what man wants to hear that is taught. Ultimately, it is not Jesus Christ and his lordship, which is at the core of faith. It is man. By men's carnal appetites, they will accumulate teachers to satisfy their own lusts. 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. There was a great debate among the Jews and early Christians as to the true nature of Jesus Christ. Was Jesus actually born of God, come in the flesh, and God's promised Messiah? The debate, therefore, was not about mere doctrines of faith, but rather in the genuineness of its author. A man's opinion, view, and belief in Jesus Christ will ultimately determine his destiny. There is but one that sits and reigns over all the sons of men, and this one is God's promised Christ. To be antichrist is to be against and not subject to God's true Christ. Ultimately, he who rejects the Son rejects not only the Savior of this world, but the ruler of the next. John 1.18, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Because Jesus, God's only begotten Son, revealed God to the world, then it is impossible to reject him and not reject God. To also reject Christ's rule and the power God has given him is to reject the divine authority of God. Benson on this verse, Neither Moses nor any of the Old Testament prophets were so well qualified to make God and His will known to mankind as our Lord Jesus Christ was. They never saw nor perfectly knew the divine being in His eternal counsels and therefore could not make a full discovery therefore to men. The only person who ever enjoyed this privilege was the only begotten Son of God, the Word which was in the beginning with Him, or as it is here expressed, was and is in the bosom of the Father." That is, always was and is the object of his tenderest, yea, of his infinite affection, complacency, and delight, and the intimate partner of his counsels. And this circumstance recommends Christ's holy religion to us, unspeakably before all others, that it was founded by one that had seen God, or that had clear and perfect knowledge of him, and of his mind and will, which no other person ever had or could have." Verse 4 now. "'Year of God, little children,' And have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. To overcome them has specific relationship to those who were listed as antichrist in the previous verse. It is tempting to believe, because of the vast amount of sinners who reject God and oppose him in the earth, that the people of God are inferior to a world of sin. Yet this is undoubtedly not true. Because Christ lives within his people, they have been made more than conquerors through him. Because Jesus has been given by God all authority in both heaven and earth, he is supreme and over all other powers in these regions. 
It is also not because we as Christians are strong in ourselves and have any personal strength to overcome anything, but only because of the presence and person of the Son of God who lives in us. Greater is he Christ who is in the believer than any antichrist in the world. The believer's strength, therefore, to overcome not only sin, but also all evil forces in the world, lies in the fact that the Son of God, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, lives within him. Because Christ lives in his people, they are made to overcome all evil spirits and men influenced by them. Benson on this verse, Because greater is he that is in you, namely the Spirit of Christ, that is, the Spirit of Antichrist that is in the world, the Son of God who stands at the head of that interest in which you embark and who aids you by the mighty communications of his Spirit is infinitely too strong for Satan, the great head of the apostasy and for all his confederates. Thus the issue of the divine government will be that truth and virtue shall be finally victorious over error and wickedness because God, the patron of truth and virtue, possesseth far greater power and wisdom than the evil spirits who promote error and wickedness. End quote. Barnes also on this verse, Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God dwells in your hearts, and by whose strength and grace alone you have been enabled to achieve this victory, is more mighty than Satan, who rules in the hearts of the people of this world, and whose seductive arts are seen in the efforts of these false teachers. The apostle meant to say that it was by no power of their own that they achieved this victory, but it was to be traced solely to the fact that God dwelt among them and had preserved them by his grace. End quote. Understandably, the Christian is not made by his own power to be victorious. This could never be the case, since this would imply trust and confidence in self, which always leads to failure. Rather, that which causes God's new sons to overcome lies in the strength of their Savior. This is a reality that every true Christian can attest to by personal experience, that because of God's presence in his or her life, things that should have overcome and defeated them in the end never did. There is a treasure, a very precious treasure, that lives in the people of God. This treasure allows God to unleash his power both in and towards the Christian. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The excellency of the power exercised both in and towards the Christian is of God and vastly superior to any opposing power arrayed and assembled against him. All victory is undoubtedly the Lord's, and due to God's power being exerted in the Christian life, they will overcome. In the people of God, God is the source of their strength and not themselves. Psalm 44.3 For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, Neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hast a favor upon them. Thou art my king, O God, command deliverances for Jacob. Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name will we tread them under that rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. The believer's strength does not lie in his own personal power to overcome, but in his God. And though God's presence is often invisible and not able to be seen in achieving the victory, still the results prove that he alone produced it. The Lord is indeed the strength, power, deliver, and redeemer of his people. And they more than anyone else know this, even if a corrupt and sinful world does not. For the people of God, God is the reason for all success, 
both in this life and that which is to come. Psalm 28, 8. The Lord is their strength, and he is the saving strength of his anointed. Save thy people and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. Benson on this, the Lord is their strength. That is the strength of his people mentioned in the next verse. He is the saving strength, the strength of preservations, deliverance or salvations of his anointed, of me whom he hath anointed to be king and whom therefore he will defend. He signifies that it was by God's strength alone that his victories, deliverances and preservations uh, were wrought, end quote. Verse 5, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world and the world heareth them. One of the great characteristics of Antichrist is that this world is their true home. Barnes on this, they are of the world. That was one of the marks by which those who had the spirit of Antichrist might be known. They belong not to the true church of God, but to the world. They had its spirits, they acted on its principles, they lived for it. Antichrists are at their core worldly. It is this world thereof, the world they will speak of, and those of the world who will hear them. This teaches us that whom a man hears, listens to, and enjoys the company of reveals whom he is really of. If it is the world, then he is of it. If it is God, then he is of him. By this simple criterion is revealed the children of God and the children of the world. If any also have made themselves friends of this world, they have by choice become God's enemy. James 4.4 4. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. When one is a friend of anything, and especially with that which is evil and rebellious towards the Lord, this reveals a kinship with it. It is this kinship and friendship with the world which confirms that antichrists are worthy of divine judgment. Ellicott on this verse, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is in enmity with God, the state of being an enemy to God, not one of simply enmity with him. There cannot be a passive condition to the faith of Christ. He that is not with me is against me, Matthew 12:30. Renunciation of the world in the Christian promise is not forsaking it when tired and clogged with its delights, but the earliest severance from it. To break this vow or not to have made it is to belong to the foes of God and not merely to be out of covenant with him. The forces of good and evil divide the land so sharply that there is no debatable ground nor even halting space between. End quote. The Christian's call through Jesus Christ is to come out and separate himself from the world. If this is not done, and a man believes that he can straddle the fence between love for God and love for the world, then it is certain that true love for the Father does not exist. 1 John 2.15 Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. No man can have two masters, even as no man can love an evil and sinful world, which rejects divine rule, and at the same time hold any true affection for a holy God. Verse 6 now. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. By the simple reality of who hears the true gospel of Jesus Christ, can the spirit of truth and the spirit of error be made visible. No man can turn a deaf ear to the truth and still be of God. There are also none truly of the Lord who will not hear the gospel when it is presented to them by Christ's own apostles and prophets. Since it is Christ himself that has placed these gift ministries in his church, then those called to him will recognize 
Christ's presence in their ministries. Ephesians 4.11, And he, Christ, gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He gave, in the original, he is emphatic, he and he alone, as the ascended head of humanity. The word gave, instead of the more obvious word set or appointed used in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, is of course suggested by Ephesians 4, 8. They who are as ministers of his gifts are themselves gifts from him to the church, end quote. It is Christ's will that he is himself more fully known to his church. His gifts to the church aid in this knowledge of himself being spread and developed. Barnes on this verse. Know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. We can distinguish those who embrace the truth from those who do not. Whatever pretensions they might set up for piety, it was clear that if they did not embrace the doctrines taught by the true apostles of God, they could not be regarded as his friends, that is, as true Christians. It may be added that the same test is applicable now. Those are they who do not receive the plain doctrine laid down in the word of God. Whatever pretensions they may make to piety, or whatever zeal they may, they may evince in the cause which they have espoused, can have no well-founded claims to the name of Christian. One of the clearest evidences of true piety is a readiness to receive all that God has taught. End quote. Whether a man will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ or not reveals what spirit he is under the influence of. It is by this that we can know those being led by the spirit of truth and those governed by the spirit of error. Verse 7. Beloved, let us what love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. There is a great importance placed on love because of its direct relationship to God. Love is of God reveals that all love has its source and origination in God. From him flows all the love present in his creation. Love, therefore, is the primary test to determine whom God has saved and made his sons and whom he is not. This is why there is no such thing as a true Christian if divine love is lacking in them. Even as those who lack love do not hold any true knowledge of God. Love is therefore that quality that reveals both being born of God and coming to gain a genuine knowledge of Him. Because God is love, He will birth children that manifest the very essence of Himself. If a man then has God's love lacking in him, you can be sure he has never been born again by God. There is also nothing that will give a man more confidence that he is of the truth than when God's love abounds both in his heart and in his life. By the evidence of love within himself, the believer is assured that he is both born of God and has actually come to know him. He also who sincerely loves both God and those born of him knows that he is fulfilling God's will for his own life. Barnes on 1 John 4, 7. And everyone that loveth is born of God is a regenerated man. That is, everyone who has true love to Christians as such, or true brotherly love, is a true Christian. This cannot mean that everyone that loves his wife and children, his classmate, his partner in business, or his friend, his house, or his farms, or his horses, or his hounds, is a child of God. It must be understood as referring to the point under discussion. A man may have a great deal of natural affection toward his kindred, a great deal of benevolence in his character towards the poor and needy, and still he may have none of the love which John refers to. 
he may have no real love to God, to the Savior, or to the children of God as such. And it would be absurd for such a one to argue, because he loves his wife and children, that therefore he loves God or is born again. End quote. Verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this. Knoweth not, Greek heiress, not only knoweth not now, but never knew, has not once for all known God. End quote. It is love which is the heavenly standard that reveals who in this world actually knows the Lord and who does not, who are born again of the Christ Spirit and those who are not. Hence, it is not religious attendance nor biblical study that provides men a true knowledge of God, but only if God's love dwells within them. By this they come to know God and visibly see God's purpose for their life. A man could live his entire life, give every possession he ever possessed to the poor, manifest the gift of prophecy, and even perform wonders and miracles in Christ's name. Yet without love, God accounts him as nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.2 And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. It is love that determines a man's true worth. And if a man has not this divine quality, both in his heart and in his life, then the life lived, even if religious, will be ultimately counted as vain. Verse 9 now. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. The greatest manner in which God has both shown and proved that He is love is by sending Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, into the world in order that men might live through Him. Pardon and not punishment, when it was deserved, proves the depth of God's love to man. There is nothing so precious that can be given than life itself. Nothing that reveals divine generosity and goodness more than when eternal life is imparted to a sinner. By this act of grace, compassion, and pity, the very nature of God is made manifestly known to the world. Thus, whenever a man or woman is born again through the reception of the Holy Spirit and spiritual life sprouts in them, then God's love is seen and again manifested in the world. Verse 10 now. Uh, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It is one thing to show and demonstrate love for those who love us or have done something to merit our goodness being done to them. It is quite another thing whereby God's love and the gift of salvation is given to those who are sinners and who previously had no real affection for God. Romans 5.8 But God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The timing of when God sent Jesus Christ to die for sin reveals the undeniable goodness that dwells in God. Before then men ever developed love for God, God loved them. Many a man also has wondered why God would absolve him of sin. The answer is because goodness and generosity are the essence of God's holy character. Consequently, it was not because men deserved Christ dying for their sin, but rather they were in need of compassion lest they die in their sins. Ultimately, men are saved, forgiven for sin, made righteous before God, and given the hope of eternal life because God is love. There is no other reason for these acts of grace beyond the reality that love dwells in God and He wishes to manifest His divine love to the world. Verse 11 now. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Having been made recipients of God's love, it should be very easy to expand it to others. Freely we have received, and just as freely we should give. This teaches us that none should share the love of God more than those who have been saved by Him. 
It is divine love that has been shown to them, and they should do their best to freely give it to others. Verse 12 now. No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Barnes on this verse. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us. Though we cannot see him, yet there is a way by which we may be assured that he is near us, that he even dwells in us. That way is by the exercise of love, end quote. No man is more assured that God dwells within him than the man whose love is perfected and begins to resemble God's own perfect love. The more then we mature in living in love, the more we will become aware that God lives and has taken residence in our own hearts. It is this confidence in the soul that assures us that we are God's and he is ours. Pool on this verse, the essence of God is to our eyes invisible, incomprehensible to our minds, but by yielding ourselves to the power of his love so as to be transformed by it and habituated to the exercise of mutual love, we come to know him by the most pleasant and most apprehensible effects, experience his indwelling, vital, operative presence and influences, whereby he is daily perfecting this, his own likeness and image in us. This is the most desirable way of knowing God, when though we cannot behold him at a distance, we may feelingly apprehend him nigh us and in us. End quote. Love is purposed to increase more and more in the believer. As it does, then the greater the reality becomes of God's own existence. By coming to both experience and manifest love, we know that God not only lives, but that he lives in us. Ultimately, there is no man who has had God's love grow and develop within himself that has not at the very same time been made increasingly aware of the reality of God. Hence, the more Christians love, the more they will become aware that God is real and lives not only in the world, but also within themselves. By divine and benevolent love is the reality of God revealed to his people. This is also why it is understandable that when men do not love, they also lack faith in God, simply because by love does God make himself known to the world, and through it do men come to believe upon God.